You're listening to the Law Careers Net podcast, a monthly podcast designed to give you everything you need to know about becoming a lawyer. Hi everyone and welcome back to the Law Careers Net podcast, sponsored by the University of Law. We're a couple of days late with this month's episode, but it's a good one and I think it will be worth the wait. I sat down virtually with Peter Wright, who is a solicitor and the managing director of boutique law firm Digital Law. We discuss the differences between a boutique and full-service law firm, the rise of data law, and how digital law works with students to change the face of what a lawyer might look like in the future. So if you're interested in the area of data and cybersecurity law, and want to find out how technology is already changing the working life of solicitors and barristers, then keep listening. Hi Peter, thank you very much for coming on the Law Chris podcast. Could you start by introducing yourself, please? Uh, thanks, Bethany. Great to, to be here and uh, looking forward to our conversation today. So um, I'm a solicitor and the managing director at Digital Law, which is uh, a firm that we think does what it says on the tin. So we advise on everything that is related to digital and technology issues. So everything from e-commerce uh, to privacy, data protection, cybersecurity. Uh, and we do a lot of work helping our clients when it comes to selling their goods and services in different jurisdictions. So we'll get uh, clients from Asia Pacific saying, we want to come to the UK. How do we do that? That also presents challenges if, for example, it's in a highly regulated sector like, say, pharmaceuticals or financial services. Uh, so we do quite a bit in terms of navigating the path for, uh, for those sorts of clients, as well as then when we've got UK based clients helping them. Uh, when it comes to compliance in overseas jurisdictions and we have like a network of, uh, of lawyers around the world that help us with that. How did you get into that area of law and how did you get into um, creating digital law? Uh, that's a good question um, which which I frequently I, I find it quite difficult to work out how it happened given that I started off qualified in 2004. I worked with a couple of sort of medium and larger sized firms, so Shoesmiths and Navarro. I was doing dispute resolution and litigation. But around 2009, I started doing a lot of work advising a uh, major government department on issues around data protection. And that was at the time when social media was really taking off, um, that uh, mobile devices were becoming more ubiquitous. And I could see that the, uh, the future was clearly going to be around data. And um, therefore, I started the work to set up digital law and we set up in 2013 and uh we've now sort of from that very slow start literally starting off on my on my kitchen table to uh to now being in a position where we've got quite a a growing team and uh you know a client base all all around the world so um it's been a uh, an interesting journey but as i say it came from that sort of germ of uh, that original seed of uh doing a lot of work around data and that proved i think to be the the, the, the right thinking because everything that's happened since then everything from the massive growth of social media use to um, stricter laws coming in around data protection and privacy it's meant, meant we've been able to sort of surf that wave all the way. And we'll come back to perhaps talk a bit more about uh, your work in data law and also um, your kind of thoughts on legal technology more generally but I wonder if you could define what a boutique law firm means and how it kind of differs from different other types of law firms. Sure. Well, I think the, the biggest difference is that we have our very clear specialism and we stick to it quite rigidly. So uh, we're quite innovative with our marketing, which means we can get quite a, a, a wide range of inquiries that come through. 
And sometimes you'll get someone who says, look, you know, I've got this issue, but actually it goes more into areas around IP or it could be quite contentious, or it could be we get a lot of people who say, oh, you know, I've, I've got a, a page on, on Facebook and they've taken it down and it's causing me problems. And those aren't the sorts of bits of work that we get involved in. And we're quite rigid in terms of saying, well, sorry, we can't help you. We'll have to therefore find someone else that can. And I think that's been the biggest thing that I've had to get used to, having worked at full service firms, to then realizing we have our lane, we're going to stay in, in it quite rigidly. And I think it's quite interesting that I think there's been a development, I'd say over the last decade or so, towards greater specialism in firms where you find that they have a clear specialist area uh, and they are not going to therefore seek to, to provide anything outside that. So, you know, we end up being very clear on what we offer. We give, I think, a very good experience to the young lawyers that work with us. Um, but then, for example, for our apprentice solicitors, I'm conscious that I want them to have the best possible start in their careers. So we have, in, in certain instances where they've expressed an interest to go and, you know, work somewhere else for a few months, we have done that, sort of been able to get a placement for them with a legal aid firm or let them see what doing criminal law is like or see what doing litigation is like. How might students get involved with a boutique law firm like Digital Law? And how also might they know that they're interested in that very specific area of law? So, well, it's interesting. I'd, I'd say more recently we've had students come to us who already have an interest in the field. And, and then it's sort of it's rolled on from there. We support the Solicitor Apprenticeship Programme uh, and we have done now for a number of years. So um, our uh, first cohort was in 2018 and uh, they're now in their year three um, of, of six years. And uh, they've always come to us very often already having done things like A-level law and having uh, a bit of an interest in, uh, in technology, though we have also ended up finding a few and working with a few students who have come to us through some of the programs that we've run. So last year, we uh, launched along with a uh, local group, Sheffield Legal Hackers, which represents sort of businesses and academia in Sheffield, put together a hackathon. And the idea was we wanted to see if we could hack access to justice. Could we put together online programs from scratch that would help in signposting people to certain areas where at the moment there's very little, if any, legal representation that they can get? So I could they get access to something through a service online that wouldn't otherwise be available? So we spent a few days working with volunteers, uh, students uh, who came from some of the uh, uh, law schools all around the country. Uh, so we sort of got in touch with a few lecturers, said, please let um, let your students know that we're doing this. We'd love to, to work with them. They came along. This was all virtual, of course, with it being the fun of 2010. So it was all done via, um, via, via webinars. But we sort of spent several days from scratch helping law students to learn how to code, which is not, I think, a skill that comes to law students easily. Uh, you know, tend to think of people that want to code being people who've got more of that maths and science background. So we specially tailored it to help law students. And by the end of it, cut a long story short, uh, we had a series of mini programs that law students had designed and built and coded. And uh, we did sort of a showcase to sort of put all that together. And it was quite uh, an eye opener to see the level of proficiency they had built up and the possibilities that could then be available just through learning how to code in the language Python, which is the same thing that, uh, that Facebook's built on. And uh, But then from that, as I say, we got to, to work with a number of, uh, of law students and we're looking at ways to, to support them in, in various ways. Some of them might be joining us as paralegals, others might be uh, going into, for example, a graduate sister apprenticeship is one of the, uh, the options we're looking at. So, so there's various ways that um, we, we tend to to start working with young lawyers. And for example, in, with a, a, something like a showcase like that, you get to see people at work 
and I find that a far more effective way of actually gauging someone's not just their ability, but their enthusiasm, to be honest. I'm always more interested in a student's aptitude and enthusiasm, more so really than the actual paper qualifications that they might have. It's more the type of person. And you can work out very, very quickly the sort of type of person that you want to have and that you want to have in working in a team. It sounds like these skills, you know, that might not necessarily seem immediately applicable to the law, you know, coding and hacking, as you said, actually, there is a growing change and that, that can be used, you know, to stand out in legal recruitment. And also, mm. um, you know, coding is being helped to kind of provide access to justice. So perhaps you could just give a little more insight into the future of um, how, how these students bringing in different skills uh, uh, might actually change the way um, kind of the law works. Well, you're absolutely right. I, I think... It is actually really key for, for, for law students to, to sort of, when you're thinking, how do I make myself stand out in the market? I think it really is a matter of think about having these skills in your spare time, you know, either self-teach, do some online courses and, and start to develop those skills. You know, 10 to 15 years ago, I think it was very much, oh, you know, the idea of being a lawyer and being able to speak multiple languages was a big thing. And I think it still is. But I think having that technical ability, being familiar with digital technology, being familiar with being able to, to code makes you a stand out and b makes you think a little bit differently you know there are an awful lot of lawyers out there who are great at litigation great at uh, real estate and mergers and acquisitions but you know there are very few in that intersection between technology and law and it's where you are starting to see lawyers in that sphere now actually really make a difference um, let me give you a few examples uh, in the law tech market there are a couple of startups that have actually been put together in some instances by law students training solicitors, barristers doing pupilages, all just working together in their spare time to actually think, oh, we think that there could be a bit of technology that could help here uh, to do something different. And um, there's, there's one startup called, I think it was Formilly, and they were training solicitors, uh, young barristers who wanted to change the way that the Form E works. Um, now, I'm not a family law expert, but I understand that the Form E is the thing that parties in a divorce will list all of the assets, problems, everything from childcare to property to, to accounts. All of this has to go into the Form E. And it's quite a laborious, tedious thing for firms, clients. And it's a very stressful thing for clients to work on as well. So they put together this app, uh, a system whereby it, it allows for a much more conciliatory way of putting all this information together, draws all the key information together. And at the end of it, you just press a button and it squirts out a form E in the full format that the court needs so that you can then move things on. And I thought that was a fantastic bit of innovation that unfortunately you very often wouldn't see coming out from a law firm, but you were in this instance seeing coming out from young lawyers unencumbered by I think some of the rigid structures that sometimes stop that sort of innovation unfortunately in a lot of law firms and that really is an example I think of the future whereby we're going to see in the 2020s a huge amount of innovation like that and I think will be interesting to see how the profession responds to that I think it's important that the profession as a whole embraces innovation embraces different ways of doing things and isn't frightened of change and really does start to deliver services in a manner that is more friendly to, to its clients so that it really is, in a few years, changing the way that those services are delivered and getting away from the way that they've been done really for the last 60, 70 years, which um, where there hasn't been, I think, enough innovation um, over the last few decades. And now a short message from our podcast sponsor, the University of Law. 
The University of Law will help you reach your ambitions by delivering an outstanding academic and employment-focused experience, honing key skills in a teaching environment based on real legal practice. As soon as you begin your studies with the University of Law, you'll learn how to think and act like a lawyer. Whether your aspirations are in law or other fields, their courses will balance academic rigour and practical skills, so your career starts from day one. Find out more about studying at the University of Law with the link in the podcast description. When we talk about legal technology, I think a lot of people kind of have this image in their minds of AI and robot lawyers, but it's actually, it's not that, it's what you just described in that example. It's kind of making the processes in which lawyers can work more effective. Is that your definition of legal technology? Yeah, it certainly is. The, the sort of the idea of AI is, is one part of it, one very important and growing part of it, without doubt. But we're also talking here about the use of technology to assist lawyers to be more productive as well as to uh, assist lawyers in the delivery of their services. So, I mean, we've seen, I think, over the course of the last 12 months, an adoption of technology by lawyers that would have taken probably five or 10 years to happen. You know, video conferencing is something that's been around for a long time. You know, you could make Skype calls in the mid-2000s, albeit the the internet wasn't quite as quick uh, as it is now. But the, the point is, is that this technology has been around for a long time. It's only in the last year that suddenly an awful lot of firms have been forced to pick it up and are now realized the benefits of it. Same thing with decentralized case management systems to allow lawyers to work flexibly from home. Yeah, it's, it's been a taboo thing almost. Oh, you want to work from home? Oh, that means you can't be interested in your career. has been the default position of so many firms for far too long. And now they're realizing, oh, actually, you could be more productive if you work from home. Who'd have thought it? And, and it's that kind of the scales falling from the eyes and realizing the benefits of greater use of technology. And when we're talking, yeah, sometimes it can be very simple things, you know, the use of shared calendars so everyone can see exactly what everyone is working on, what everyone's commitments are, who's doing what. You know, sometimes if you are chained to a desk using an older style system that doesn't have that degree of functionality and ability to share, you you are not able to, uh, to benefit in the same way. I mean, one of the key things that we were looking for when my firm started to use its most recent case management system was we wanted this to work across all devices. So about four years ago now, it was like, right, how do we get something that will work on a phone, on a tablet, on a laptop, on a desktop, all with identical degrees of, of, of functionality so that you can do everything that you need from wherever you happen to be at any time. And you'd think that was an easy thing to get, but it isn't. And I think <laughs> there's an awful lot of shiny systems out there. Saying, yes, we'll do this. We can do that. And suddenly when you start to use it, you suddenly start to find what the restrictions are. So I, I think it's also important for, for lawyers and law firms to still be quite discerning and ask a lot of questions of their suppliers about how it's actually going to work before you then take the plunge and start to use. But to, to answer your question, yes, the technology uh, in delivery of legal services varies to a, uh, a massive extent. And sometimes it's the simplest stuff that can make the biggest difference. How much is innovation and entrepreneurship valued in your line of work? And leading on from that, how can students develop those skills and demonstrate them in application processes? Uh, that's a very, very good question. I think that um, innovation and entrepreneurship is immensely valued in the, um, the law tech sector. You only have to go along to a conference like Legal Geek. Um, hopefully, they'll give it up and running before too long uh, again. But you, you see there a really exciting atmosphere of innovation, loads of different ideas and thoughts, thought leadership taking place. And that's incredibly important in, in, the, uh, in the law tech sector where, and I think that's quite unique because sometimes I think innovation and 
coming at things in a different way is not really valued sometimes in uh, in many law firms, particularly they'll look and say, well, we don't want our young lawyers to come in with these different ways of doing things. This is how we've always done things, which can lead to a bit of a challenge. And I must admit, I found that in, in some of the firms where I work, that you'd say, well, hang on, we want to be doing things a bit differently. Why don't we do this? Why don't we do that? And you used to find that you, you were sort of constantly having to try and push water uphill to get to get things done in a, a more modern, more client-friendly way, um, because you're always pushing against this well this is the way we've always done it why should we have to change um, atmosphere it seems to permeate in a lot of firms but certainly in, in digital certainly in law tech it, it is really important to be looking at different you know the way that you end up delivering services and constantly innovating constantly asking yourself actually could we do this differently could we adopt digital signatures across the, our client onboarding process so that we make this as painless for, for the client as possible. How can we take digital IDs so that we can still comply with our requirements when it comes to money laundering without the, this laborious process that puts so many clients off? Really looking at, at, at the way you do things and constantly changing it and even thinking, okay, well, we changed this two years ago. Can we further streamline it? Can we make it more efficient? It, it's really important to, to, to have that sort of thirst to innovate and change it. And I, I think, therefore, that uh, you know, for, for students who are sort of wanting to get into the area, I think it's, it's a matter of then demonstrating that through your CV, through your skills, through some of the different things that you may do, even if it, uh, like I say, engaging in things like hackathons um, or, or attending the different uh, conferences and events or, or being able to get, even if it's uh, an accreditation, it doesn't mean an awful lot, but just being able to show that you might have been a, and done a course online to, to, to pick up other additional skills, I think is incredibly valuable. I mean, we do a lot of work with the European Law Students Association who do on uh, summer schools, you know, a week in a European city, they bring in lawyers to, to sort of teach a load of lectures and workshops. At the end of it, you've got a certificate to say, yes, I spent a week learning all about data protection or a week learning all about uh, IP or whatever it may be. And I think it's getting things like that and being able to put something on a CV that a firm might not have seen before or might not be familiar with, then leads to them think, well, we need to bring this person in for a conversation, or that they then want to ask questions to find out more about it. So I think there is a lot that students can do to, to make themselves stand out. And in a crowded marketplace, it remains more important than ever to do that, I think. I wanted to ask a little bit about your day-to-day -day job in data law and cybersecurity law, because I think it's such an interesting area of the law. We recently ran a webinar uh, and your colleague came on and talked about that a bit. So perhaps you could just kind of shortly summarise what your day-to-day -day job involves and what that looks like. Sure. I, I wish I could say that I, I get many days that are similar. <laughs> it, it, it's quite difficult to, uh, to do that, really. I suppose I should first of all say that we, we sort of work on a hybrid basis. So we've, we've got, you know, limited people in the office and then uh, also quite a lot of people then working from home. And we plan on keeping it that way as well. We, we always did do that and we plan to carry on doing it. So a typical day, therefore, involves quite a few video conference calls and working with really a wide range of clients. We do quite a lot of work with startups and we've got quite i think quite a good offering for startups we've developed our services over the years so that they've got a range of fixed fee options you know if they're just saying oh you know right i'm starting up a new website i'm going to be selling general retail items 
we can then sort of help them with the legal compliance around that, everything from terms to privacy to cookies. But also you end up doing a certain amount of hand-holding. For example, we've got one client at the moment who I think is wanting to sort of get to market as quickly as possible and has been determined that the easiest way of doing that is to say, well, I'll just be a sole trader and I'll do it that way. And we're having a, a gentle conversation around you might want to set up a limited company. And also we've done a quick search and the brand you're wanting to use is currently used by about five other global organizations and you're just making life difficult for yourself in your first year when your aim has got to be get through the first year and make sure that you are you know in 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 the black rather than in the red get rid of all the obstacles in your way don't put obstacles in your way so as we do a lot of work with with smaller uh startups around that all of our our work is done on a fixed fee basis so we always sort of make it very clear from the outset in terms of transparency. If you want a privacy policy, this is going to be the fee. If you need a uh, cookie audit, cookie schedule, this is what the fee will be down to the, the, the last down to the last penny because it gives then your clients budgetary certainty. So we end up doing quite a bit of work on that. I do a lot of supervision with my young lawyers because I like to get them up to speed and into a position whereby they can take more responsibility uh, as early on in their careers as possible. So it's a matter of working very closely and always having one of my uh, apprentices on every call that I do um, with a client so they can see the, the conversations that we have and the, uh, the sorts of problems that might come up. As well as then the, the smaller startups, we end up doing quite a bit of work with some quite recognisable brands you'd be familiar with, certainly in, in, in the UK. And then um, we've got some really interesting multinational clients. Uh, and I'd say that's actually been the big growth area over the course of the last year. So you end up doing quite a lot in the way of calls with clients in Italy or, or India or Australia. And sometimes it's the logistics of just getting that so you can get everyone around the virtual table can be a bit of a challenge so you're doing you're doing calls with australia in the morning and calls with new york in the evening so uh, so that can be uh i'll say a bit of a logistic challenge but also uh, a matter of just being able to plan and use your time as as efficiently as possible so yeah that, that that's kind of the uh of, of the challenge and then it's also a matter of making sure that you then build in the time to uh to as i say to be able to manage to to work effectively we we do i think a lot in the way of sort of quite carefully managed team meetings during the week just to actually sort of stay on top of everything as well i think it's really important to do that where you can get everyone in the firm together either electronically or or, or, or physically in place just so you can have those conversations I think that's been one of the, the problems during the pandemic sometimes has been, you know, that element of Zoom fatigue. And I'm, I'm looking forward to the days when we can actually properly get people back in, in, in a room because I think sometimes it is important to do that, have that um, interaction, because sometimes there are questions you might not want to ask that are not easy to articulate or put through, or you might not feel comfortable sharing on a on a Zoom call, but you will then share if you can have a conversation on, on the fringes in person. So, and I think that's actually really important when it comes to young lawyers and having the, the freedom to do that. And sometimes, as I say, a Zoom call, I don't think necessarily provides that. So I think that's really important from a, from a managing and a supervision point of view. And Digital Law also has its own podcast. Do you want to give that a shout out and explain what you cover in your weekly podcast? Yes. So uh, that's one of our, uh, I suppose, our sort of pandemic projects is I'd always wanted to do a uh, podcast. So we, we launched that in the middle of last year. What we do is a, uh, a weekly run through of digital law uh, legal news issues so anything from stories around you know what, what's been hacked this week um, uh, through to um, advice that the National Cyber Security Centre might have given out monetary penalty notices from the ICO as well as just stories in the news and sometimes we'll pick up and talk about an issue like say for example driverless cars and, and the um, 
the legislation that the uh, government has recently introduced around the introducing the possibility of having driverless cars in certain circumstances on UK roads is, is quite an interesting issue to uh, to look at. Other weeks we've looked at everything from cryptocurrency to, uh, to NFT to, um, you know, anything else where you can really think of that, that nexus between law and technology. And if it's interesting, if it's something a little bit different, and if there's been some press coverage on it, we will then talk about it. So it's usually about half an hour each week. And I, I think we we have a quite a small but loyal fan base. I think some of it's just our, our clients and contacts, and I know that people just sometimes like to, you know, listen to it when they're going for a walk or to, uh, to you know, take the dog for a walk or when you go they're going for a run. But if you just search Digital Law on Spotify or Apple or Google Podcasts, you will find us. And uh, please do feel free to subscribe. So uh, we're also on uh, on YouTube, so you can give us a like and subscribe on YouTube where you can watch us recording the podcast if you really want to. We're on Twitter, which is at Digital Law UK. We're on uh, Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Digital Law, and also on, uh, on LinkedIn. So uh, please do uh, feel free to, uh, to like us across multiple, uh, multiple platforms and stay in touch. And that's also a way of then seeing not just the sort of digital marketing that we do, but also different conferences and events where we're uh, speaking as well. And we're hoping that that will gradually take off again towards the, the end of the year as the uh, economy unlocks. It was really interesting to chat to Peter and please do make sure you go and check out Digital Law on social media and their podcast. I'll put some links in the description for those who are interested. Before I go, just a quick notice to let you know that applications have officially opened for our prestigious Legal Careers Conferences, Law Careers Net Live. If you haven't already heard about Law Careers Net Live, there is lots of information on Law Careers Net and the Law Careers Net Live site too. But essentially, if you are interested in becoming a commercial solicitor at a top law firm, you'll want to be there. Law Careers at Life is taking place in Manchester, London and virtually in November and December later this year. Applications close on the 28th of October, but we will be making offers on a rolling basis from early autumn. So it's best to get your application in sooner rather than later. I look forward to reading your applications and hopefully seeing you there. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Law Careers Net podcast and we'll see you next time.